You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hi, I'm Zach with the UBC Medicine Podcast Network, and I'm really pleased to bring you our third show, COVID-19 Updates for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Front Lines, from the excellent team at UBC Medicine's Continuing Professional Development, UBC CPD. The podcast series replays recordings from their COVID-19 webinar series that brings together panels of experts to discuss how COVID-19 is impacting their practice and to answer important questions from their colleagues. If you're interested in other recorded or live events and resources, don't forget to check out their website, ubccpd.ca. I'm also pleased to tell you about our two other shows, The Metamorphosis podcast was created by students for students, and it's long-form interviews with medical specialists about their careers, their passions, and their practice. And we hope that it's going to help med students in navigating their career and choosing a specialty. That's med, M-E-D, amorphosis. Our third show, Primary Care in a Pandemic, looks at the changes in primary care in BC during COVID-19. Doctors Morgan Price and Sarah Fletcher talk about ways primary care clinics can and are adapting in this crisis. They try to keep things real and practical so you can apply these ideas in your practices. Brought to you by UBC's Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or ISU, in the Department of Family Practice. So welcome to COVID-19 Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. Today's session is Ask Emergency and Critical Care Specialists, Part 1. Today you'll be hearing the voices of Drs. Omar Ahmed, Adam Thomas, Mario Francis Pergazum, Danish Ahmed, Dee Hoyano, Chloe Lemire Elmore, and Donovan McDonald. Our recording date was March 26, 2020. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenter's homes and without professional equipment. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, I'd now like to introduce you to our speakers um, uh, and pass you on to Omar Ahmed and Adam Thomas, who uh, who, who will introduce others who are going to be presenting along with them. Uh, thank you, uh, Omar and Adam. All right, thanks so much, uh, Bob, and it's an absolute uh, pleasure and honor to be here tonight. I'm going to introduce our uh, panelists for tonight, uh, starting with myself. So my name is uh, Omar. I'm a a critical care and emergency medicine physician in uh, Victoria, B.C., and I'm the department head for uh, those two departments, Emergent Critical Care for Island Health. So I've been very busy um, preparing and uh, working hard with our most amazing uh, teams, uh, clinicians, and uh, non-clinicians alike. Um, I'm very thrilled to have my good friend um, Adam Thomas join us tonight. Many of you probably know Adam Thomas from uh, his international renown as one of the uh, podcasters and authors for the uh, international or the Internet Book of Critical Care and works with Josh Farkas and the EM Crit team. Adam Thomas is also a emergency medicine physician and is currently uh, finishing up his ICU fellowship at uh, the University of BC and is uh, calling in uh, tonight from Calgary. Thank you for joining us tonight, Adam. Really great to have you. I'd also Happy like to thank you. I'd also like to introduce um, a few other panelists we have here. We have. Uh, 
Uh, Mario Francis Pergassum, uh, also another eMERGE and critical care physician. Uh, Mario practices critical care also in Victoria as well as on the mainland and works emergency at um, St. Paul's Hospital as well as uh, Vancouver General Hospital. Um, I'd also like to introduce Dee Hoyano, who is one of the medical officers of health with uh, with Island Health, and uh, it's great to have Dee because there'll be many questions that uh, her expertise will be uh, uniquely she'll be uniquely qualified to answer. Uh, and you can see uh, here just beside me is uh, Chloe Lemire Elmore, who is the medical lead for the hospitalists. Uh, here in Victoria, and again, we'll give another perspective from the point of view of inpatient management and admission criteria for non-ICU, uh, non-critical care patients, and uh, help with possible decisions of how to send people home. I'm also very pleased to have uh, Dr. Danish Ahmad, who, and you'll see a theme developing here, he is also an emergency uh, medicine and intensive care physician. And he actually works in New York City, so in the epicenter of, uh, of uh, the coronavirus in the United States. And very pleased to have him because he can speak to the environment that is there and perhaps give us a little bit of a looking glass view uh, of what is to come, possibly. Well, hopefully not that bad. But uh, And Donish works in a quaternary uh, site, academic site, uh, Mount Sinai right in in the heart of uh, New York City. Um, so those are the intros. In terms of uh, disclosures and conflicts of interest, we really have none. Adam Thomas and I work with uh, a group of physicians who uh, run an app called Rosie, uh, which provides uh, support to rural physicians. Um, and we do have a website called, uh, and the link there is rosytelehealth.com, and it's just a place for people to ask questions and get support um, and they call in and get uh, the help of an intensivist um, with various backgrounds of uh, specialty training. I want to answer, uh, disclosures but not necessarily conflicts of interest. Today we were called, uh, the session is called Ask the Experts um, and I just want to disclose that none of us are particularly experts and I don't think there are any experts in this region. Things are in this, uh, in this domain, things are changing on a daily basis and we're learning as we go. Um, and uh, we were asked um, um, to put this together about a week ago and we said, sure, we'll be happy. At first we were very reluctant because there's lots and lots going on, um, but we said, sure, we'll do it, but there's really not a lot of time we have to, to prep for this. And so under that understanding, we said we'd be happy to, to talk, share um, comments, share stories, and answer questions, um, but just know that we're we we will um, we're not experts. With this panel, hopefully, we can get to all your all the questions or get to many of the questions that we have. Again, I want to stress that whatever we say today uh, may very well change uh, as soon as this podcast is over. There's so much literature and so much knowledge sharing that's happening that things are are really changing rapidly. And uh, in regards to literature, I'm sure you've all seen. There's a lot of good literature. There's a lot of bad literature. And there's a lot of ugly literature out there. And um, in this time of information sharing, we're well aware that, of course, much can be published without much, um, much evidence or peer review or, or strong sort of research um, methodology behind it. So things are changing. And what we think is the gold standard yesterday changes as something better comes along in terms of methodological uh, rigor uh, in terms of the studies. 
Uh, further to that, of course, as you all know, there are a lot of controversies. Um, and so again, uh, in terms of the changing landscape, there's, there's some things we just won't be able to give you an answer for, but we can certainly touch upon different approaches um, and hopefully things will become clear as we go forward over the coming days and weeks. Um, and then finally, it's important to say uh, sources of truth are very, very important. Uh, we are going to speak, we all work in different health authorities, we're going to speak to the sources of truth for our health authority and we can chat about the rationale for why we do certain things where we do, but that might not be true for where you work. So all of the sources of truth um, know what the direction is from your uh, local public health officer uh, as well as your health uh, authorities. Um, so without uh, further ado, we'll jump into, uh, into our talk. Adam, is there anything you want to add at this point before we start? I guess, oh, sorry, I was just getting feedback there. Um, the only thing I would get is, I, I know there's a lot of people in different clinical contacts on the line right now. We're all with you. We get there's a lot of apprehension. Um, I just want to echo what Omar just said, that there is a lot of misinformation out there. And Mario said something 15 minutes ago that is key, that we have to be very careful that fear and hysteria do not drive our clinical practice, because we still have to treat patients and uh, presentations that showed up before COVID. Um, so we're trying to give you guys the armamentarium today to approach this new clinical situation that we recognize uh, does influence our daily clinical work, uh, but it's really important that we put things into context of uh, what's true and what's not true. And like Omar said, everything is changing every day. So we will say something today and we will be wrong. Please do not tweet us. Please don't message us saying, there's a new JAMA paper out tomorrow morning, you guys are wrong. We recognize we're wrong. We want to be wrong because exploring more about this is a good thing. So uh, with that caveat, let's, um, I think, hear from the front lines in New York. Hey, how's it going? A pleasure to be, uh, be with you guys tonight. Um, and I hope you guys uh, have a less of a uh, tidal wave slash hurricane come your way. Um, the experience in practicing in New York has been surreal even being in the middle of it and seeing it day to day and seeing how it affects our healthcare system is still hard to uh, wrap my head around how kind of massive this, uh, this epidemic is. Um, walking around New York to some of the major kind of central hubs and commercial hubs and just being empty for the first time really ever. Uh, I'm sorry, Dennis, somebody's uh, mic is not muted online and uh, throwing some the weird feedback, guys. Can everyone listening from home please turn your mic off? We're awkwardly listening to someone mix a drink. There you go. Sorry, go ahead. Sure, so I was just saying, um, it's, been, it's been kind of a harrowing experience, and despite, again, seeing it every day within the emergency department as well as in the um, ICUs, it's so hard to kind of wrap your head around yeah, the scale of this. And I think the best way to kind of put it in perspective is walking down Broadway or walking through Times Square at 3 p.m. and not really seeing a soul out there has been, um, again, just unfathomable a couple of years ago. Um, it's not all doom and gloom, however. I think all the different services come together to kind of see these patients and how the administration come together and trying to um, come up with the best contingency plans and the rest is wonderful. 
seeing the well uh, well wishes from uh, fellow New Yorkers who aren't quite known for the warmth and uh, uh, coming kind of seeing that has been great and uh, some of the public messaging social distancing has definitely kind of um, gotten through the public. We're seeing a lot of that now, as well as uh, seeing outpouring of love for healthcare workers, where literally we're having almost every meal in the emergency department catered from uh, some local business or not. Um, uh, that's, that's kind of an overall general picture. I think clinically it's been um, it's been a challenge kind of dealing with um, this, this volume of patients. I think we've changed around the layout of our emergency department about three times in the past three weeks, depending on volume. And um, it's just slowly become more and more, uh, as we, we initially tried to keep it a clean and dirty side, if you will, for lack of a better term. And again, I, I'm hesitant to use that term, maybe a COVID and non-COVID emergency department. Um, the split that we're making is more and more towards a fully COVID unit. And kind of the spread in New York is, um, it's just it's so endemic that it's almost, it's almost impossible to, to keep a COVID side and a non-COVID side of the emergency department. We're seeing people come in with strokes with just very um, um, dense neurological signs with no other symptoms and we'll get a head and neck CT and they'll catch kind of the apices of the lungs and they'll have findings that are consistent with uh, COVID pneumonia. Um, so uh, it's been a challenge in that sense. And I think um, what's, what has been remarkable and, and what's somewhat reassuring is that our experience clinically has really uh, mirrored what the Chinese physicians as well as the Italian physicians have said it's almost pattern recognition when you see these patients come in. It's like they've all essentially read the textbook, coming in with leukopenia, um, the same kind of x-ray findings, um, this this hypoxia that is not commensurate with their dyspnea. So they'll be talking to you in full sentences, saying they're feeling fine, and you'll look at the pulse ox while they're on a non-rebreather, and they're setting at like 89%. Um, I think that just goes to, um, and again, I think I would agree with our Chinese and our Italian um, comrades in arms where an early intubation is probably best because it is incredibly hard to pre-oxygenate these patients. And I know there's been a lot of questions about non-invasive ventilation. I think there's a couple issues with that that we faced in, um, in New York City is one is whether or not those are closed systems, whether or not those are aerosolizing, uh, especially with the BiPAP or the high flow, and having enough negative pressure rooms to be able to do those procedures to, to kind of place those patients on uh, non-invasive uh, ventilation. And so we're kind of using up our negative pressure rooms and um, are these more robust forms of oxygenation. We find that the patients usually do end up deteriorating pretty significantly within the next 12 hours. And uh, we've kind of taken it as a practice to intubate earlier. Um, part of the job that I have at Mount Sinai is I'll also round on, um, when I'm not in the emergency department, I'll round on patients in, on the wards who are less critically ill but will get called for critical care consults. And these are often patients who I saw in the emergency department who looked well on two liters nasal cannula and I'll go see them the next day and they're crumping out on their high flow nasal cannula completely just kind of um, maxed out on that and they're, and they're still saturating at 90%. And when we go to intubate them, what is a little bit um, nerve-wracking is that these patients desat within seconds. Um, it's really um, important to have the most experienced intubator be the one who has the first pass. Um, I, I kind of scoffed at the idea initially uh, a couple of weeks ago when people were saying that, thinking that, hey, maybe we should really have our residents be the first pass, uh, given that this is a teaching institution and the rest, but it's just been um, 
I think it puts oftentimes puts the patients at risk unless you have full faith in these residents, and these aren't great teaching cases because, again, I've seen patients desat literally within five seconds. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been a bit of a challenge. Great. Thanks so much, Donish. We're going to certainly go into uh, a lot more detail about a lot of the things you, you spoke about. And, um, yeah, it was very harrowing listening to, uh, listening to you talk uh, last night when you were filling me in about um, the, the state of things in New York. Uh, so we're certainly going to delve into a lot more detail in, into what you spoke about, uh, in particular sort of the initial presentations then timelines in terms of what we're seeing uh, as to when they're getting sick. And then we'll go through uh, the procedures for, for intubation and, and all the rest. I think the um, the clinical running of the departments is very fascinating as well. So I'm sure there'll be some questions uh, for you there. I'd also like to chat with you about uh, and the rest of the team as well, but in particular, what your experiences have been in regards to palliative care and, and how their involvement is very different than than how they would be in uh, in normal day-to-day -day operation. Um, and uh, so maybe we'll uh, we'll start off a bit, um, take a few steps back, and just chat a little bit about. Uh, about the virus, and I think um, just to take a few steps back, and I'd also like to talk. Maybe I'll get the panel just to talk about uh, one thing. I wanted you to, you mentioned, Donish, a lot of um, people coming together to support our healthcare workers, and I've got to say I've been very impressed uh, with the amount of collaboration that has come about with this virus being a international phenomenon, um, and sort of seeing it on a on a global level how organizations that normally uh, are at arm's length with each other are actually coming together to try and and fight uh, the vaccine and sharing um, genotyping and, and working towards vaccines and, and therapies and, and just so much sharing of, of literature. Um, I'd love to hear uh, maybe from, from Mario next and then maybe Adam, um, and then we'll go to Chloe and Dee just in that order about just um, act, random acts of kindness that we've all sort of um, heard about or personally been uh, been uh, recipients of those acts of kindness. Just I think it's just so heartwarming. So Mario, yeah, um, thanks for having me. Uh, one of the things that uh, you know has been pretty profound is the support that's coming in from the community, from various uh, small businesses to our uh, downtown emergency departments. I think in the context of the uh, businesses being shut down and their non-essential. Uh, these acts of kindness are quite poignant. Um, uh, for example, uh, one of the local pizza joints on the last day that they were operating used all their remaining ingredients to bake a bunch of pizza pies for the staff at Vancouver General Hospital Emergency Room and send them in before they closed up the joint, which, um, you know, uh, that was super touching. Uh, there's been uh, certainly an overflow from the community for donations of masks and uh, PPE equipment uh, to both PGH and St. Paul's, and that's also been very encouraging. Um, it really does feel, for the most part, like we're in this together, and that's uh, certainly boosts up morale. Thank you, Mario. Um, Adam? I think you're on mute, Adam. Okay, well, I think we may have lost Adam for now. And uh, Chloe, did you want to share some of your experiences? Sure, yeah, thanks. Thank you very much, Omar. Um, there are two things that have really struck me um, since this all started. One of them is the sense of solidarity among the teams and collaboration. Um, 
the admitted naivety that many of us have as we prepare to face the somewhat unknown, the increasingly known, but something that's changing every day. And so I sent um, so real support and um, unity with the emergency room staff, critical care staff, the administrative staff, the nurse leads in coming together to come up with a, our hospital's response and then the island-wide response. Um, we also have the IMP, the Island Medical Program, with um, medical students here, and they got together and have put, um, put together a website and um, a spreadsheet offering all sorts of different support for healthcare workers, from childcare to buying groceries to pet care. And really, they said we can do, we'll do anything we can to help. So that um, that outreach to support us as we face this together is quite heartening. Uh, and Dee, do you want to add a few things? Sure. Um, I think what I wanted to really recognize is that what we are experiencing globally and certainly in Canada is a whole of society effort to protect these vulnerable people who will bear the, you know, the most serious consequences of this disease. And so I think we're, we're asking so many people right now across society to make big sacrifices right now. They're not working. They're not able to socialize with their family and friends. And, uh, you know, and we know there's going to be lots of social impacts of this pandemic that extend beyond um, our situation. And so I think that's just been really touching to watch is that the majority of people um, are, are recognizing that and uh, you know, playing their part. Um, and it is a very bizarre uh, bizarre situation to be in to ask people to do nothing to protect others, but that is the best protection we have right now um, at a societal level. And, uh, and I think to recognize all the sacrifices and the choice decisions that people are making um, to help protect healthcare workers, to support them, and also to help protect some of those populations we know are at highest risk. For example, our seniors who are in residential care. Um, just as an example, I have a neighbor who uh, uh, is a cook in a senior's home here in Victoria. His partner works in daycare. She uh, has made the deliberate decision not to work at this time because she does not want her to be becoming a transmitter to her husband who would then go into the, uh, the care home and potentially infect you know, the people that he serves. So it's just, um, yeah, it's just been an amazing thing to really witness in, in the community. All right, perfect. Thanks, everyone. So we're going to um, move on to sort of more of the meat and the potatoes um, and uh, do a quick little review of uh, some of the clinical aspects, and then we'll get into some questions. Um, so obviously important to talk about the virus itself. So I think we've, we've all followed the, uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, dashboard, so we won't go into that, other than I think it's interesting to know that uh, the um, mortality um, case fatality rate is anywhere from 2.5 to 4.5 percent. So Put that in perspective, uh, SARS was 9.6, but uh, SARS was uh, was fairly contained, not as transmissible uh, as is um, as is, um, SARS-CoV-2. Um, the MERS uh, co um, coronavirus had a mortality rate as high as 34.3 percent. Again, that was fairly uh, contained, not as contagious, and that uh, compares to influenza, where it has a mortality rate of 0.05 to 0.1. So we're looking at 25 to 50 percent. Uh, sorry, 25 to 50 times. Uh, 
as high a mortality rate um, compared to influenza, so pretty significant. Um, of course, the, uh, the the denominator we probably don't know, of course, because we're not testing everyone, so it's probably lower than that, but uh, the numbers so far are fairly staggering. Um, to touch a little bit on the virus, uh, it's an mRNA virus, um, and uh, obviously a part of the SARS uh, coronavirus family, um, so a lot of the studies on transmission and possibilities of it being airborne or not are based on um, the, the previous uh, coronavirus uh, pandemics, epidemics, including uh, SARS-CoV-1. Uh, uh, the ACE, uh, it's got an ACE2 receptor through which it's, um, it binds and, uh, and enters the body, and I think that's interesting as we talk a little bit about controversies in regards to ACE inhibitors and ARBs, uh, actually not so much controversial, but that uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go forward. But the fact that it uses an ACE2 receptor is interesting because there are multiple receptors for that throughout our body, including the uh, the kidneys, the lungs, uh, as well as the GI tract, and explains a lot of the clinical uh, clinical um, presentations that we see. Uh, a big question always is PPE, and there's going to be another uh, upcoming um, webinar on that, but uh, I think it's, we can't uh, not talk about it. So, Adam, do you want to chat about uh, PPE as we know it so far? Sure. Can you guys hear me? Am I muted? We can hear you. Okay, perfect. So maybe I'll step back and I'll talk about transmission because, guys, it's really important everyone understands how this virus is transmitted, and that directly correlates to the recommendations around PPE. So the major driver of this is fomite to face. It's contact transmission, uh, for which droplet is a form of contact transmission. That is because this virus is a bit of a sticky thing, and it can live for prolonged periods in the environment on organic material and inorganic material. Um, so someone sneezes into their hand, they touch anything in the patient's room and you come there minutes to hours later, that virus is still viable based on New England data. So fomite transmission, very important. Now where people get confused and there's conflict is between airborne and droplet. And remember the, the biggest example of airborne um, that everyone freaks out about is something like Ebola, not because of the mortality rate, but just because it's easily aerosolized. Now, there is data flying around there that it is viable in air when aerosolized up to three hours. Remember, that is in a drum, that you just circulate the drum, uh, and you see to see if there's live virus particles. Um, so whether that applies to true airborne transmission or not, we don't have an answer on that. And that's why the guidelines internationally between ANZEX, WHO, CDC all have conflicting recommendations because it's not really well known. So from now, um, use your local MHO guidance on this. We did just get a provincial uh, memo on the 25th to say, Everybody providing clinical care right now in the province needs to have a surgical mask on and be careful around droplet transmission. Uh, is that okay for now, Omar, just because we're going to be going into PPE session later? Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds good. So um, maybe we'll uh, roll back over to, uh, to Donish and talk a little bit about uh, maybe just the, uh, the early clinical presentation and some of the, uh, the characteristic uh, lab findings. And then Mario, maybe you can add uh, to that as well. Um, and so Donish, and then I'd be interested to see Donish. So um, 
yeah, the early presentation and then how long time frame wise we've you've mentioned that it's very similar to to China and the Italian experience. I think our audience would love to know sort of what what kind of time frames are we are we looking at roughly. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll do the clinical presentation and Mario, you can touch on uh, on labs as well afterwards. Sure. So uh, the initial clinical presentation is uh, it seems pretty benign. Usually they cough. Uh, usually fairly well appearing, um, again, very influenza-like, uh, body aches, myalgias, again, just kind of this uh, not feeling well. The, the overwhelming complaint that we get when they come into the emergency department that, uh, that finally brings them in is dyspnea. Usually that's probably up to a couple of days after initial present, after initially just feeling ill, so we usually see them about five days in. Um, oftentimes what we'll say to them early on is uh, if we'll check their pulse ox, kind of check some of the labs, make sure nothing crazy is going on and we'll tell them you're either going to stay at home or we'll see you again uh, in a couple days as your dyspnea kind of gets worse. Great, thanks so much. And are you, um, I've heard some signers using uh, pulse oxes and, and asking patients to uh, either take them home from the hospital or go and purchase them. Have, is, that, uh, is that happening in your, uh, your location? I, I think if we had the resources, we would love to do something like that, but, I, but given kind of the scope and the prevalence of this, we haven't been able to do that. Uh, I think another thing oftentimes we'll do before discharging patients home is we will uh, go for a walking pulse oximetry and make sure that they don't desat uh, too, uh, too far before discharging them home. Okay. And that's, and in, uh, and that's in similar health, to telehealth. For sure, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of telehealth being set up. We know that uh, the family physicians uh, here in Island Health have set up many uh, telehealth uh, portals uh, to see their patients, and that's been pretty impressive. And there have been sites that uh, that patients come in, they get their uh, they get their pulse ox done, but the, no further vitals are taken, and uh, and that's kind of how they're done to protect the uh, the healthcare workers that are looking after these patients. Um, we've also opened up at least on Island Health clinics to to see these patients on an outpatient basis so that they're not all streaming to the emergency department and they've got clear criteria that if they're not overly sick, then they can go to these clinics and be seen. Uh, Mario, do you want to chat a little bit on um, on some of the labs and maybe touching upon some of the labs that might not, uh, just the basic labs we made you, and maybe some of the lab work that's important for some of the inpatient caregivers like Chloe uh, sitting next to me and uh, and for some of the intensivists as to what might be helpful uh, as, uh, as the disease progresses. Uh, certainly, sure. Um, the main uh, lab abnormality that's present in about 83.2% of patients, and this is data out of uh, Wuhan, China, is about uh, is uh, leukopenia, uh, or uh, sorry, lymphopenia. Um, some of them have uh, LDH greater than uh, 250 units per liter. Um, and uh, the interesting thing from a pulmonary infectious standpoint is that because it's mainly viral, the procalcitonin that we usually uh, can rely on isn't as elevated. It's only elevated maybe in 5% of cases. Um, with uh, respect to uh, other aspects of the disease, there is a transaminitis that's sometimes seen with these, um, as well as in sicker patients, often a herald of uh, very poor outcome in death uh, in critically ill patients is a, a myocarditis uh, expressed with a troponin increase. Um, there's probably uh, a couple of things that uh, inpatient providers should uh, look at with respect to lab work. And I think I'm going to say this because it has to be said that lab work takes a backseat to clinical course and uh, clinical course should always be respected. Um, uh, but if we're looking at the lab work, 
uh, very high CRP or elevated CRP, uh, increased uh, neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio uh, above, uh, and uh, a increased D-dimer uh, can be indicators that a significant inflammatory cascade is about. Um, any early signs of myocarditis uh, should be treated with uh, a lot of caution and uh, I think that if there is any concern about myocarditis, uh, that would um, uh, result in an ICU referral. Um, those are kind of the uh, main lab findings. There's also radiological findings, but they're pretty, uh, they're generally uh, pretty typical of atypical uh, viral pneumonias. Um, uh, there is some crazy paving that's found on CT scans, but again, uh, not the suggested diagnostic modality for these, uh, mainly for infectious control precautions. But uh, I think that's... Uh, uh, sorry, there's one more important lab finding that I was hoping to touch on. Some people do think that having positive cultures for group A strep and, sorry, for uh, for other common pulmonary bacterial infections excludes COVID-19 infection, but this is not true. Superinfection is seen and is often resulted with uh, associated with poor outcomes as well. Uh, thank you, Mario. That's great. And not only do we see uh, superinfections with bacteria, but we often see um, concomitant um, viral infections as well. And I think early on our data was saying that if you have RSV or, or test positive for influenza, your likelihood of having uh, COVID are, are very slim. But now we're actually seeing that up to 20% of people can have co-infections with other viruses. So that's quite uh, quite interesting and concerning. I'm going to turn it over now to, uh, to Chloe to chat a little bit about um, when uh, what kind of um, vital signs we may be looking at to actually admit the patients, and of course the corollary to that is what are what are safe criteria to send patients home. Uh, so I'll pass that on to uh, to Chloe. Great, thanks, Omar. So I guess um, as a hospitalist is doing the admissions, it's going to be the ERP who's assessing the patient, and the question really is: Is this somebody who is presumed COVID positive or known COVID positive? whom we can safely discharge home with close follow-up or would need to come in. You can kind of break that down into, I think, three categories. You'll have the, the clinical, then the individual's past medical history and past personal history, and also social should be considered when we're looking at disposition. So in coming in clinically, we're going to assess the patient is, you know, quite clearly, is this individual needing oxygen to maintain saturations of greater than 92%? Are they able to maintain their saturations over 92% for a period of time, or are they de-statting intermittently? Um, are, they, are they dyspneic? Are they displaying signs? We know there's quite often um, silent dyspnea going on, so oxygen is what, what we're looking for there. Additionally, looking at the lab work, we're seeing some of those signs that are poor prognostic factors. Um, the more severe the lymphopenia, perhaps thrombocytopenia, elevation in the D-dimer, any elevation in troponin, as was just previously said uh, by Mario. By Mario. Um, so we'll look at those as well. Once we've determined, okay, this, per um, this person based on, say for example, the individual is maintaining saturations of 92 to 93, but then we look at their personal history. They're 67, they're 70, they're 80. Anyone over 65, we should have a lower threshold for bringing them in. Then in their past medical history, cognizant of the, um, the comorbidities that put individuals at an increased rate of poor outcomes, so cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, chronic lung disease, any of those comorbidities, we would certainly be looking at bringing them in. Finally, there's the social piece. Um, do they live at home alone or with a young family? 
or do they have elderly in the household where we would be concerned about an increased risk of exposure? Are they living on the street? Are they in a shelter? Has the shelter closed? Are they in close proximity with others? What is the, what is the possibility of their following up with public health or keeping an eye on things? So those are all factors we would consider. And then if we're looking back to the clinical, the question is, do they need to come to the ward or should we be getting ICU involved now? And we would base that on the degree of oxygen that they're needing, clinically how they're doing, and also very importantly, what the agreed upon code status is. So once we've made the decision to admit, early on, we, uh, we need to have a robust discussion about code status. And that, that has to include um, going over what the, the, the trajectory is for the, for, with COVID um, and also considering the, the patient themselves. Some places, I believe it's the UK right now, have, are using the clinical frailty score um, as an adjunct or to support this discussion about code status. And they're seeing anybody with a, a frailty score of five or above that the more appropriate decision is an M3. So we'll do everything medically possible, but the likelihood of a good outcome if you were to go to the ICU is quite slim. So again, a robust code status discussion early on, what to expect, what the signs and symptoms of clinical deterioration are. So needing greater than six liters by nasal prongs or non-rebreather masks, frequent desaturations, any sign of shock, altered level of consciousness, resp respiratory distress, Talk early on with the individual and the family members about what steps we'll take when, if and when we get there. Um, for the C1, for the full code, the ICU candidate, it's an early discussion with ICU and early intubation, as has been said. For those who aren't ICU candidates, possibly trying higher flow, off to flow, up to 15 liters in a negative pressure room, but again, on a case-to-case -case basis, because we know for not, not everybody would benefit from that. Excellent. Um, Thank you so much uh, for that, Chloe. Uh, that was great. Um, lots of interesting um, thoughts in regards to uh, the frailty score. And I think that's something we're going to be using a lot more of. I've, I've heard in, in this uh, in this pandemic to help us guide therapy. Um, Donish, do you mind? So we've we've got a patient here that uh, that's been seen in the emergency department, has been seen by uh, by Chloe, and and uh, saturations are good. They're 95, 96 percent, and. They've had a, a PCR done, that's, uh, and the patient sent home. The uh, the swab, um, Chloe tells us, came back negative uh, the next day, and the patient's out in the community. Uh, and this is one of your patients that then comes back uh, a few days to you later, and actually turns out to be COVID positive. So I was wondering, maybe Adam, you can talk a little bit about the uh, the PCR and, and sort of how somebody who might initially look pretty good, maybe you know, what what is the sensitivity and and how often are we seeing negatives? And then Donish, if you can talk to the timelines of when you are seeing these patients bounce back to you and and just very quickly how they uh, how they um, present, Adam. So I'll back up and I'll say, um, remember the sensitivity, how good the test is at picking up all the positive cases is. Uh, dependent on the prevalence. So in this awkward phase, especially on the island and communities where we have low prevalence of the disease, the sensitivity will be lower of the PCR. So the big caveat here is that your pretest probability, if you really think this patient, like Danish was showing us, if they're hypoxemic and they sound like the textbook presentation and have a negative swab, be very careful of calling them COVID negative. Now, the range of sensitivity for the uh, PCR test 
nasopharyngeal or oral pharyngeal is reported between 59 and 71 percent. So it's very dependent on the prevalence and then the specific clinical correlation. The only two caveats I'll say is um, it depends if your patient's intubated or not. Tracheal aspirates can be used to confirm that. Uh, bronchial lavage and washes, be very careful because those are aerosolizing procedures. Um, so if you have a high index of suspicion or other data points that make you think this is a COVID-19 patient, uh, you don't necessarily need to continue to pursue that. Maybe I'll leave it there. Danish, I guess you're up. Yeah, sure. And so I guess we're talking about the timeline of when they usually come back. I think in our experience, it's been about, uh, we usually see them pretty minimally symptomatic within, um, and then usually about five or seven days later, we'll see these patients come back to the emergency department with more hypoxia, more dyspnea. And um, at that point, we usually admit them with um, with pretty um, with pretty low requirements on oxygen. When I talk about low requirements, we're still talking about nasal cannula. Um, and then usually about two or three days following that, we'll usually kind of get the critical care consult in terms of do these patients require higher levels of uh, of oxygenation, more robust methods of oxygenation. Um, in terms of presentation, it's it's remarkable. Uh, I had uh, I had probably about 30 of them last night in the emergency department just being admitted waiting to go up, but uh, three of them required intubation. What was just remarkable is while they're sitting on a non-rebreather, they're satting at 89%. And I remember one of them literally called his wife on his cell phone, had a full-on conversation with her while he's on a non-rebreather about how he's going to get intubated. So these patients um, look sneakily good, at least clinically, before they, um, before they kind of uh, go over the cliff with their oxygenation. So that kind of be the timeline. Okay. I'll leave it there. That's great, um, Donish. And... Um, so maybe um, at this point, uh, we'll talk a little bit about imaging. Um, so Adam, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, about ultrasound? And maybe, actually before you do that, Mario, do you want to chat a little bit about um, what your institution's approach is uh, for using chest x-rays and CT scans of the chest to, to diagnose? And sure. Um, I think uh, the guiding principle here is that uh, COVID-19 is a variable clinical entity with many different um, presentations and phenotypes. Um, that in mind, we discouraged using CT scans uh, to make diagnosis of COVID uh, unless COVID-19, unless uh, absolutely critical to management. And certainly, there I, I don't really know of many scenarios where that is the case. Uh, of course, we'd use CT scans to rule out other uh, illnesses and disease processes that would be uh, competing diagnoses. Uh, chest x-rays would be used fairly routinely uh, for the same reasons that uh, chest x-ray is used in uh, a variety of dyspneic patients. Uh, they have been uh, kind of relegated to patients who are complaining of significant shortness of breath or having an objective measure of desaturation like hypoxia uh, one, some, one way or another. Um, but the other kind of instance uh, that is starting to be looked at is uh, in uh, terms of uh, preservation or reducing the quote-unquote super spreading events that happen throughout the hospital, so nosocomial transmission. Uh, and for that reason, um, CT scans have been used in China and Italy. And they're starting to be used at VGH for elective abdominal surgery to ensure that patients don't have 
uh, asymptomatic um, COVID-19. Um, the uh, only caveat to this is that's still on a very early research phase. So to summarize, um, really, we're using chest x-rays and CT scans the same way that we use chest x-rays and CT scans to guide management in our other with West Victoria. Sure, and then I'll just sort of say that um, uh, I think as we go forward, we're trying to minimize staff uh, exposure, as you said, and sort of wheeling these patients through the uh, through the various departments. So we're trying to um, we're trying to use portable X-ray if we uh, if we if we can, and uh, trying to minimize at least in our institution uh, chest X-rays and CT scans as well. We had recently talked about rolling out uh, doing abdominal um, adding CT scans of the chest and patients with abdominal pain because there is a uh, certain subset, I think up to 20% of patients with COVID that can present with GI symptoms alone. And so uh, early on, uh, especially if you're admitting them or you're worried about abdominal pathology, such as an acute appendicitis, and they're going to the OR, then getting a CT of their abdomen, but also getting a CT of the chest as well. But uh, I think the, ev the evidence still behind that is is not entirely uh, strong yet. So we've kind of backed off doing that. So again, continue to use your clinical judgment, but please try to avoid uh, too much um, wheeling around uh, of these patients around hospital. Um, another thing we love uh, to use, and Adam, maybe you can chat about this, is is uh, POCUS and, and maybe some of the findings um, in relation to COVID, please. So there was a lot of work in 2009 and 2003 of correlating um, bedside lung ultrasound findings with other viral entities. So this is not specific to COVID, but bedside ultrasound correlates very well to CT findings, and CT is more sensitive than chest X-ray. So with bedside ultrasound, what you'll see is a normal A-line profile is normal lung, meaning horizontal lines from the near field all the way down the far field, kind of like the checker pattern or sorry, the barcode, um, you're repeating lines all the way down. Patchy B lines, not diffuse like you see in heart failure, but patches of B lines, either multifocal or these big chunky ones that uh, convalesce and come together. That is consistent with a mnemonic process, something peripheral in the lung that's plural-based and causing inflammation. So if you see that on lung ultrasound, that correlates well with the CT findings of ground class opacifications that are very common in COVID pneumonia. So how does this clinically correlate? There are some institutions that are using this um, to rule out respiratory uh, involvement. I don't think the data is there yet. I'd be very careful about it. My sense is we still have to be clinicians like we were before COVID. So if someone presents with hypoxemia, I don't think anchoring bias would be the right thing to do and just call it COVID. You should look for other causes of hypoxemic respiratory failure. So lung ultrasound in combination with your full ultrasound assessment can help us save materials um, as in flying through chest x-rays and CT scans and PPE with these patients moving everywhere. And it can also help you guide management right away with your assessment. Awesome. Thanks so much, Adam. And I think we have to continually remind ourselves that, uh, yeah, we, we kind of uh, 
are very much focused in on COVID and we need to remember that uh, people still get um, interstitial pulmonary fibrosis and COPD exacerbations and pneumonia and uh, other forms of diseases and, and certainly, um, yeah, anchoring bias is, is huge. I would certainly recommend uh, to our listeners, uh, I mean, I think most people are very savvy with with POCUS, our emergency physicians are pretty impressive. Um, but I think for those that, uh, that haven't used it a lot, I would recommend uh, really getting your ultrasound out and practicing lots on all the patients you see so that you can uh, recognize normal um, and it's a very easy scan to do with practice but as soon as you as soon as you get uh, normal down it'll be pretty easy to find uh, what abnormal looks like um, so that would uh, I think that's important um, and then Adam I think you had mentioned you wanted to chat a little bit about uh, about treatments maybe we can go into that and then we'll answer we'll maybe get to a few questions um, that are coming up for sure so guys what I will say is I know you have a lot of questions we let we will touch on treatments quickly. The punchline is, if you hear nothing else from this webinar, is that standard of care right now for COVID is supportive care. There is no good evidence that any antiviral re regime is effective at all. And the proviso is, at a provincial level, we are recommending that these antiviral regimes not be used outside of the setting of RCTs. There will be different guidelines on the health authorities you guys are in but it's really important that we don't fly through the hysteria running around. So the perfect example is that is Kaletra. Kaletra, we know about post-exposure prophylaxis and HIV. It was touted to be effective in Ebola and SARS, and it turned out it was not that effective. And then we now have an RCT out after we were giving it off-label that shows it is not effective. So I think that's a good example is we have to be careful that we're dumping resources and diverting these medications around from other populations um, without known benefit. That is the proviso for the next category. So chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, you guys will see a lot of information online about this because Trump tweeted that this is the cure for COVID. That study he cites is an open label, non-randomized trial in 26 patients. It is not an RCT that can definitively tell us that hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin is, help, is helping. And we are seeing harm from this. So patients are overdosing on hydroxychloroquine and veterinary chloroquine um, because they think they're treating COVID. So be very careful using it. There are physicians across the country that are getting in trouble with licensing bodies because they're prescribing it for families. And there is no evidence that it does anything wait for the RCTs. The other quick ones you'll see, remdesivir, uh, again, no, no evidence. Um, Tamiflu, before COVID, we would commonly with uh, hospitalized uh, influenza-like illness, we would give Tamiflu until the SWAD came back negative. Tamiflu does not do anything for COVID. Asorbic acid, vitamin C, controversial, but what I will tell you, outside of severe ARDS, there is no benefit. It is controversial with severe ARDS. Uh, and the last thing is you'll see these immune modulating therapies, whether it's methylprednisolone, IL-1 inhibitors, or IL-6 inhibitors like tocilizumab. This is a growing evidence base. There does seem to be a small subset of population that maybe Danish can tell us about too that we are seeing in Vancouver now, day eight to day 10, they got better and then they're having this secondary inflammatory reaction where they start to get multi-organ dysfunction and worsening lung compliance. 
the Chinese and the Italian colleagues uh, online are telling us that methylpred and tocilizumab help. But again, there are only growing small RCTs coming out of China right now. So watch for it. But again, no evidence. That's all I got. Uh, that's fantastic, Adam. Thank you so much. And I did want to just um, talk a little bit about uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine a little bit because I think it's just it's quite fascinating. We're hearing about a number of overdoses in the states, and as you mentioned uh, before, and I think people again listen to Trump's uh, Trump's advice to go buy this stuff out. So uh, the it's it's very hard to get because of course the stocks uh, are, are cleared off the shelves, but. Um, we're actually finding that you can get uh, chloroquine phosphate, which is an antiseptic for fish tanks. And uh, so people have uh, bought all this antiseptic and it's no longer available in the States because everyone's stockpiling this. And it's uh, extremely lethal. Just a teaspoon of this can get you uh, quite uh, incredibly toxic. And uh, just out of interest's sake, I mean, we haven't seen many chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine uh, overdoses in, in decades. But uh, just as a quick reminder, it's got very potent uh, and multiple mechanisms of action. Uh, so sodium channel blockade, and the reason that's important is you might want to consider sodium bicarb or uh, hypertonic saline when you treat it. It's got potassium channel blockades. So you get a prolonged QTC. It's got a direct intracellular shifting of potassium, so you get hypokalemia. So just uh, multi and it's of course in addition to those things, it has direct uh, cardiac toxin effects. Uh, the one interesting thing about uh, hydroxychloroquine is. Uh, one of the uh, one of the mechanisms to treat it, or one of the anecdotes, is to give high doses of diazepam, and uh, it's specific to diazepam, not other benzodiazepines, which is quite fascinating. The uh, receptor for the uh, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, um, the, those, those medications have a very similar um, a, um, chemical molecular structure, and so diazepam, being similar to it, actually displaces the hydroxychloroquine and the chloroquine. Off the, uh, off the myocardial receptor, so it's quite fascinating. So we're talking about massive doses of one to two milligrams per kilogram IV and giving that repetitively. So I find that, that was, that's quite interesting to have reviewed that, um, that toxicity. So we may or may not see that, um, but it's, uh, it's quite, uh, quite fascinating. Um, so let's go over to some questions now. Um, we've got, um, so there's a couple for Danish here. Um, the first one being, are you seeing much anosmia um, in your in your patients that are coming uh, coming back to you? Uh, a couple of our providers who have tested positive had had anosmia. I can confirm that. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, and then uh, another question is, and maybe Adam, you can speak to this because you just. Uh, went on a long road trip. In fact, you're calling from uh, from another province right now. People are asking, how are we keeping our families safe? And so I think you're at the one end of the spectrum, and I can talk about what I'm doing at my end of the spectrum as well. Maybe we can hear from Dee as to how people are keeping their families safe. Um, Adam, do you want to talk about uh, what you were doing uh, throughout the night last night? Just throwing me under the bus there, Omar. Um, Not at all. Not uh, at all. Given Given a lack of family supports in Vancouver, for me to continue my clinical work in ICU there, we've decided that uh, my family will be here in Calgary with uh, our extended family here, and I'll return to Vancouver. So that way, um, transmission no longer becomes an issue. 
And Adam, sorry, I didn't mean to throw you under the bus. That was not the intention at all. I'm actually very respectful of what you've done. And I just love the fact that you have immersed yourself in, in COVID preparation and the amount of work you're doing at the local level, the uh, provincial level, and I believe probably doing some stuff at the national level is, is just amazing. And you are a true hero. So thank you. I didn't mean to throw you under the bus there at all. Um, just bugging me, Omar. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, how about you, Mario? Oh, you know, I think you're muted. Yeah, no, I'm unmuted now. I think um, I think it's uh, been a bit of a challenge, but um, I've uh, basically usually uh, my partner and I exchange the kids uh, over every couple of weeks. But um, uh, we've uh, you know it was a very hard decision to mainly say that uh, I will be talking to them via FaceTime and uh, video chat uh, until this is over and. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, other than that, uh, when I come home, I take off everything I'm wearing and I toss it right into my uh, washing machine and go take a shower and scrub myself before I touch anything else. Great, thank you. Um, well, how about you, Chloe? Are you, uh, any, any thoughts on how are you protecting your family and your it, that's an interesting question. So um, we've had we have a group of seventy four doctors, and all of them are asking just that. Um, and one question that was brought up is, should we get housing for the docs who are working on the COVID ward? And we had, you know, we were reassured by the the medical microbiologists that we have here, and consider our local experts that you know PPE works, practice it diligently, but that the risk of bringing it home to our families is low. So that's what we're advocating for. We are saying it for everybody, you know. It, uh, encouraging everyone to wear scrubs and shower at the end of the day before changing into their street clothes, going home, having separate shoes for the workplace. But um, at this time, we're not separating out from families, but perhaps if others on the panel say that we should be, we can change our tune. So, so I, I, uh, sorry, I do want to kind of address that, if that's okay, Omar. I, I don't think that's what I'm saying. Uh, I, I think what is, what is coming out of Italy, despite their system being completely overwhelmed, the rate of healthcare worker transmission remains quite quite low with appropriate PPE it's under one percent and I think that it's completely reasonable not to separate yourself away from your family and trust the PPE um, this is just uh, I I am a paranoid human and yeah maybe I'll say that the human side is that we're all entrenched in clinical work and there's a lot of work to do um, and it's not really transmission but it's that I can't be a good partner so for for my kids and my wife to be supported they, they need extra family around so I think that would be the major drive um, and I can say the um, the first patient that I intubated with uh, with possible COVID um, I, uh, I slept in a separate room, um, away from my family that night and I didn't really interact with them, uh, until the, uh, the COVID, uh, came back negative the next day. Uh, unfortunately my family continued to not interact with me for the next 24 hours, but, uh, but that's, uh, that's a whole <laughs> other issue. Um, now I'm going to, uh, there's a question here, um, for, uh, for D. Uh, how many cases do we estimate BC actually has uh, and uh, in comparison to the numbers that are reported? Um, so maybe I'll turn that over to, uh, to Dee. Uh, how many cases do, do you estimate BC actually okay. has? Yeah. So we certainly know that based on our testing criteria right now, 
that is not an accurate picture of what our real cases are in the province. Um, the, the latest estimates that uh, I've seen are that we are likely in, we likely have several thousand cases in BC. Again, the majority of those are mild cases. Um, and the, I think the other important thing for people to remember is that this will not be distributed uh, uniformly across the province. You know, the way this is transmitted, we will see clusters and uh, transmission within, you know, within certain geographic areas. And of course, that is the principal reason why the social distancing measures are so important to try to interrupt that transmission and movement of, of uh, the disease into to new areas. Um, so that is why the public health recommendations have been that if anyone has mild respiratory symptoms, they are to self-isolate for 10 days um, at minimum. And the, uh, all the other measures that have been implemented uh, you know, across the country right now is to try to decrease um, people's uh, social interactions. Um, we know that the, um, that again, for the majority of people, this is going to be a mild illness, um, but it is transmissible, and so that's the piece that we need to be hammering over and over with everybody uh, about how important their role is um, in, in preventing the spread. Great. Thank you, uh, Dee, for that. Um, I'm going to turn the... Uh, the next question over to Donish, but we can all certainly um, chime in a little bit. But unfortunately, I think as we go forward, we'll, we'll know more how to answer this particular question. So the question reads, I am a palliative care consultant and wondering how patients die. Do they tend to die quickly or more slowly? And did any require palliative sedation to control dyspnea? And I think maybe, Donish, uh, you can also talk a little bit, because uh, it's very related, of course, is the, uh, the conversations with palliative and how you are consulting them differently uh, during this pandemic uh, compared to how you normally would? Sure. So um, in terms of how these patients die, um, it's mostly been just refractory hypoxemic respiratory failure. Uh, the last two deaths that we had were patients who essentially failed proning and within four hours just kind of became more and more hypoxic and essentially uh, arrested from that. At this point, they're already intubated, sedated. Um, so uh, I don't think they were in any, hopefully not in any distress or pain. Uh, we made sure that they were comfortable, obviously, on the ventilator and proned. Um, in terms of how we interact with palliative care, they've now gone to a 24-7 service, whereas prior to this, they'd been a 9-to-5 service as a critical care division. What we started doing is screening patients who had uh, high likelihood of mortality and just going through, again, some of the studies that have been mentioned by some of the other panelists tonight was just going through some of the biomarkers uh, to start with. So it would be biomarkers and age. So age confers a higher likelihood of mortality. And we'll kind of go through D-dimer, um, some uh, uh, worsening lymphopenia, whether or not they're on multiple pressors. And then we'll kind of uh, reach out to the team taking care of them uh, at that week or during that time and kind of ask if they're doing worse or better. And then if, uh, the, if the primary team agrees that they're doing worse, and we'll usually consult um, palliative care on patients that would have probably been consulted much later in their course. We're just trying to catch these patients before they uh, get into dire straits and have these uh, goals of care conversations um, earlier. And again, I think we're pursuing these much more aggressively, knowing that in the near future we will be having issues with uh, ventilator distribu distribution. We will have to start limiting our availability of ventilators to patients. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, uh, Donish. Um, 
few other questions that Oh, sure. And actually, uh, Corey would like to add something to that as well. Thanks yeah, for sure, Corey. Something that um, in a lot of these conversations, it struck me that there's a lot of, there's much talk about the patients going to the ICU. I feel as though I'm often defending the ones who are M3 and wouldn't be ICU candidates. So in developing our local clinical order set, we put um, Dilaudid on there at, at a, a low range dose. I think it was 1 to 2 milligrams subcut, 0.5 to 1. Q4H, and a prompt for the nurse to call us if they, uh, after they give the second dose. And that's because we know that even if, before we're palliating a patient, as they're developing more and more air hunger, that the dilaudid adds comfort. And there's no need for these people to suffer right until the very end and we switch to palliation. So we are, um, especially on the, the, you know, the M3 patients, if we're not calling ICU, we're discussing palliation and starting those end-of-life meds, um, well, starting the hydromorphone. And there's a really neat um, a symptom management flowchart that was developed by the palliative care team here um, in BC that also gives a, it's a nice breakdown on what doses of which meds. It's your, they're your standard, standard palliative care medications. Um, again, having had this discussion early on about when we'll start them, um, because we know that, that a lot of it does work with dys, for dyspnea. And, uh, and I often tell families, we palliate a lot as hospitalists, um, that they'll likely go into a deeper and deeper sleep, and that's what's needed to c control their symptoms, so the families know what to expect. Um, and then the twilight sleep. That's yeah. great. Thank you so much. Um, all right, great. Um, another question uh, that seems to have a lot of uh, likes is, if you could pick one or two signs that visibly tell me that a patient is in need of respiratory support, what would that be? So I think uh, in our critical care literature, um, one of the vital signs that's often missed time and time again is just the respiratory rate. And we all take the heart rate, we often take the blood pressure, we take the temperature, but we often just kind of roll our eyes and sort of say, yeah, that's a respiratory rate of 14 or, or 15, and, and we kind of we move on. But, um, you know, looking at the, uh, at the respiratory rate is a tells us a lot about uh, their, their um, suspected trajectory. So I think if you look at someone and they're breathing, you know, 22, 24, that should raise, uh, raise some alarm bells. And uh, again, that's something that I teach all my residents is, is look at that respiratory rate no matter what uh, condition we're looking at. And that holds true across spectrums of diseases, not just respiratory, but other forms of sepsis, urosepsis, or any other forms of, of shock, cardiogenic, anything, uh, even without the presence of, uh, of congestive heart failure, uh, tachypnea is just really, really key. So I would say uh, look at the tachypnea um, is, is an early harbinger of, of things to come. And uh, I think Donish mentioned this earlier, but I think walking oximetry is also very, very important. Um, we've all heard that, uh, you know, when patients come to the emergency department, we examine them in a bed and we send them home. But you know, we don't realize that the patient's got a limp leg from a spinal cord compression or whatever, and we're all sort of guilty sometimes, especially in a busy emergency department, not to examine our patients walking. So make sure they can walk and make sure they can walk okay um, with, an, with an O2 sat on, and if they start to drop below 90s, you're obviously pretty worried about them. So those would be uh, two, uh, two quick signs I would look at. Um, there's another question about how do we uh, assess patients over the phone for whether or not they need to be seen in the emergency department or they can stay at home. And, and that's, uh, that's a great question. I think more and more we are seeing across jurisdictions that we're using virtual telehealth to examine patients. And again, just looking at a patient gives you a lot of information. So if you have that ability to do so, that would be great. I know Zoom is being used a lot. I have no interest in Zoom whatsoever, but 
Um, it's uh, it's been used by a lot of clinics now, um, and so that's one thing you can use. Of course, with the advent of FaceTime and WhatsApp video and all sorts of other video apps, anything that you can use to to actually physically look at your patient again, that'll give you a sense of what their respiratory rate is. If you don't have access to that, then the same things that I said apply before. Uh, get them to take the respiratory rate as well as get them to uh, to take their uh, their resting heart rate as well. Um, I'm going to turn a question over to. Um, we are, are we able to comment on which if we're on the trajectory of Italy? I don't know if we know that right now, so maybe not a fair question. But if I can get you to talk, yeah. speak to that, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's what we will see in a few weeks. Is are we on the same trajectory, or have we implemented these uh, social distancing measures, the border closures, uh, the quarantine um, measures uh, in time? Um, so I, I cannot answer that yet. I I hope and pray that we have been able to do that. Yeah. Um, and then I've got uh, just a comment from a, a good friend of mine and um, just an excellent clinician, Dr. Jeff Eisen, just reminding me to emphasize people that uh, the standard supportive care and uh, is super important. At the end of the day, this is a viral illness, so. We know uh, we know what to do and and continue doing what we uh, what we do, um, and uh, I think that's good. Any other questions, Donald, that you can think about that we need to address right now? If not, we'll go into a little bit about uh, where they are now, coming back to see Donish and um, and how that intubation process goes, and maybe some advice. Um, but any other questions we're missing at this point? Uh, the top question right now is: What is your opinion on asymptomatic individuals being contagious? Uh, mm. Dee, do you want to take? Uh, Want to take that question? I can. Um, okay, I'm sorry. I don't know if you heard that question, but uh, I guess the, the question that's trending the most right now is: uh, Are asymptomatic patients contagious? And I'll pass that on to uh, to D. And again, this is uh, you know this could be I could be wrong tomorrow. Um, I think what we understand to this point, though, is that um, the the majority of transmission will be from people with symptoms. Again, we know it could be very mildly symptomatic, um, so not necessarily people who are obviously ill and uh, uh, coughing a lot, et cetera, but um, the majority of transmission, because it is a, a droplet form, will be when we are basically more efficiently transmitting droplets. Um, I think that's also another reason why, um, as, for, as healthcare workers, in particular, um, we need to be monitoring our own symptoms and taking those measures to protect, um, you know, protect us from uh, from potentially, you know, transmitting when we are uh, experiencing that very uh, early symptom onset. Thank you, uh, thank you, Dee. Um, so maybe we'll uh, we'll go back to uh, to your case, Donish. Um, you said that uh, you were, we were talking about a patient last night that has a history of uh, of hypertension, and they were seen uh, a number of days earlier. And now they were coming in uh, looking uh, looking pretty uh, pretty sick. Um, so maybe we'll chat a little bit more about your approach, and we'll we'll sort of move pretty quickly to decisions to uh, to intubate. But uh, before we do that, Adam, do you want to chat a little bit about? Uh, ACE inhibitors, because this patient was on an ACE inhibitor, and uh, and how that plays into things, if it does at all, is it helpful, is it harmful, do we know? So the punchline is we don't know, um, and right now up front I will tell you the age 
FDA and the European Cardiology Society both came out with statements last week saying do not stop people's ACE inhibitors or ARBs for their regular blood pressure control. The caveat being, when people are critically ill or coming into hospital, we stop those medications for other reasons anyway. Because if you're hypotensive or unwell, the risk of AKI with ACE inhibitors is high. So if they're coming to hospitals, you should stop their ACE inhibitors for that indication, not for COVID alone. But if you back up to the physiology, remember ACE inhibitors block the, the angiotensin 2 receptor. You can upregulate the receptors. And the physiologic argument is that is maybe why people are at increased risk of illness and have higher viral levels when they are on ACE inhibitors. We do not know that answer. People are exploring it right now. So the punchline for people in the community, you can continue your patients' ACE and ARBs when they're coming into hospital and they're unwell, they should be stopped for other reasons. They work in patient care. Thanks, Adam. That's great. Um, and then, Donish, we'll get to you in one sec. I just want to answer uh, a couple questions here that I think are important. Uh, number one is, do you see a role for medical students in the future? Um, and uh, I guess I'm getting older in my in my life here, but you guys are our future, so... Sorry, uh, maybe that's a bit hokey, but uh, there's, there's, you guys are our upcoming generation of physicians that are going to be leading the charge ahead of us. Um, and I'm very, very, very proud. Um, Chloe and I work with the um, Island Medical Program here, and the, the number of medical students here, as well as other parts of the province, other um, satellite locations of UBC, have just been coming out in droves to, to offer support and encouragement and um, they've even offered to, to babysit and pick up groceries. And uh, I'm working with, uh, with a med student um, that I'm very proud of um, who is working on with a bunch of other med students to, uh, to get PPE from, from various suppliers in the community. So uh, absolutely, medical students, um, there's so much. And, and thank you for, for everyone that's, that's stepping up. Uh, we're, we're so fortunate to have such a great group of, uh, of, of people that are going to be our future. Um, there's a quick, there's a question here, but what is the situation in the ICU currently? Um, so in BC, we're starting to see an uptick uh, in cases, uh, mostly uh, at in Fraser Health. There's been some cases in uh, at Vancouver General as well, but for now, uh, Fraser Health seems to be hit the, the hardest. There's uh, cases now, uh, I think in every health authority, uh, more or less. I, I'm not sure, Adam, did, um, I'm pretty sure we've got cases just about everywhere, but if we don't, we will in the, in the near future. Um, so it is here, right, and it's, uh, and just in a plug with that, just so people know, um, just to talk about collaboration and whatnot, just to not to, to maybe give people reassurance. The the degree of collaboration is just so warm, and and every 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 morning, seven o'clock in the morning, all the intensivists are on the phone chatting amongst ourselves. Um, and getting the updates from uh, from people like Adam and his crew that are putting together daily updates, and so, and we chat about important topics like how do we approach PPE, how do we approach code blues, how do we approach uh, resource allocation in regards to ventilators and PPE, and it's just, it's uh, it's really nice and coming together as a province, um, and I, it really gives me great hope that uh, if we've got a chance, we're going to get through this through this great communication uh, that we have, and uh, it's it's uh, pretty. 
pretty nice times to see that. Uh, Donna, can you talk a little bit about, uh, so this patient comes in, they're looking pretty poor, you're, you're sort of thinking intubation. Can you sort of go through how your site goes through that process and, and how, you, how you think about that and, and any anxiety levels? Or, I mean, I know you've, you've intubated, I think, over a dozen now uh, COVID patients. I think you've admitted well over 50 COVID patients. So you've kind of, you've seen the most out of all of us. I hope we never have to see that that much here, but uh, maybe just chat a little bit about how, the, how that happens. Sure. So, like I said, we've split our ER into a COVID and non-COVID zone. Um, when the patients look like they're uh, tachypnic, hypoxic, just off of uh, nasal cannula, they'll usually be moved into one of our pretty limited negative pressure rooms. Um, and at that point, we'll evaluate the patient in the negative pressure room. For the patients uh, we saw last night, was tachypnic, was hypoxic despite the non-rebreather. And I think the hard part mentally is, is just pulling the trigger to intubate. These patients are talking to you in full sentences, are completely with it, as opposed to, for most patients who are intubating, look like at least they're an extremist or something along those lines, and we're going a lot based off of vital signs. And again, the tachypnia is present there. Um, we have two different algorithms that are pretty similar, uh, one that's in the emergency department and one that's upstairs. In the emergency department, we'll usually move the patients into a negative pressure room and we'll try and limit the number of providers in the room to be two and set up as much as we can prior to going to the room. So we'll have the uh, nurse drop all the meds, we'll have the, uh, the respiratory therapist set up the vent outside the room and we'll kind of bring it in with us. And when we go ahead uh, for the nitty gritty, and I'll just be uh, brief about it, for the nitty gritty of the intubation, we'll usually use high dose paralytics um, to assure a kind of ideal um, uh, situation for intubation and um, and so we, what we've been saying is the most uh, uh, experienced provider should be the one intubating and I think that that, that I, I was skeptical of that at first I wanted to make sure the residents had their experience with difficult airways but uh, after after seeing how quickly these people desaturate and given the uh, the dangerous levels to which they go to when uh, intubating them I think it should remain that um, once intubated um, we'll place in the um, We'll place the NG tube, we'll place all that uh, just to make sure that there's not a need for repeated x-rays. Um, and we will try not to bag them at all costs. We'll usually place them directly onto the ventilator with that capnography um, to make sure that we, uh, we, we've gotten placement. Upstairs, what's kind of been different is we've actually um, seated the airway to anesthesiology. And what will usually happen is uh, one of the critical care providers and the anesthesiologist will be in the room not to provide each other backup, but the anesthesiologist will be taking the airway, and that just goes to show kind of how seriously you have to take this airway, and there is a lot of trepidation just given how quickly these guys do desaturate. Uh, whether it's an easy airway or a difficult airway, it doesn't matter. Uh, just even sec within seconds, these people are, are desaturating down to the 70s, and you can do everything you can to um, to try and pre-oxygenate, but again, we are kind of limited uh, in, in, the, in our ability to uh, pre-oxygenate some of these patients given the aerosolizing uh, nature of the, the disease or, or the process of non-invasive uh, ventilation. Okay, great. Th thanks so much, Donish. I think, um, you know, if there is interest in, in having this, uh, this panel back, I think we'll really dive into, um, you know, checklists, and, and the, the briefing and the debriefing and the doffing and, and all that other stuff because I think it's a whole topic in and of itself that's so uh, so important. Um, and, uh, and I certainly want to stress just a couple of things that, uh, that I've learned from, from you as well as Mario uh, intubating his COVID patients is that uh, 
um, number one, that these people, as you say, desat so quickly, and, and that seems to be universal. I'm sure Adam would say the same thing. Um, so just just be aware, and I can't stress enough. Have the have the best intubator there, and uh, and number two. Uh, Please, for people who are going to be doing the the intubations and doing any procedures that involve aerosol aerosol generation, please, please practice in advance both donning, doffing, and actually do simulations uh, and try and make it as real as you can and go through the process of of giving drugs and doing... uh, doing the uh, practice of inserting the endotracheal tubes because you'll pick up little things that you'll forget uh, along the way. So having checklists is really important. If people want to uh, email UBC CPD, we're happy to share various checklists that have been um, shared amongst the intensive care and emergency medicine groups. Uh, there's no, no point in invent- reinventing the wheel, but that whole process, donning, doffing, is really important. Um, so just going to go on to some questions here. This first one is for, I'm going to direct this to Mario. Uh, do you have any experiences of patients with type 1 diabetes and COVID-19? Any comments on their course of illness with regards to insulin therapy? Yeah, so I've had the unfortunate pleasure of uh, intubating a, a young, healthy 27-year-old uh, type 1 diabetic uh, with uh, COVID positive, uh, came back COVID nineteen positive, um, and uh, in general, the uh, there is some significant hypoglycemia that did occur uh, throughout the week, um, and uh, it, it's super challenging to manage their blood sugars while they're kind of in the intensive care unit, particularly because they already have a deranged um, insulin response to um, uh, sugars. Uh, with respect to deterioration, et cetera, you know, this is a younger patient and certainly does have the classic uh, risk factor of severe disease, which is diabetes as born through the Wuhan data initially. But um, uh, the inflammatory cascade wasn't that bad and the patient did uh, come off the ventilator after a week's time. Um, yeah. I think I had one uh, di- uh, type 1 diabetic patient. What was interesting for me was I found that once we started treating, we had enough time to treat uh, the DK pretty aggressively, but once we brought uh, their bicarb up, despite their tachypnea, we were able to avoid the tube. I, I don't know if that was just uh, foolhardy or if we uh, we did the right move, but luckily we were able to avoid uh, the ventilator for that gentleman. Um, it's pretty uh, pretty crazy stuff. Omar, I think there's a couple other questions. Should we uh, should we try to fire those out quick? And I think everyone's muted. Dennis, you're yeah, still um, on, brother. Go, go, go ahead, Adam. Um, a couple um, things I wanted to address quick is um, steroids, because people were asking about steroids and asthma, and et cetera. Um, so steroids are not recommended currently uh, because of concerns about increased risk of viral shedding. Um, so we should not empirically be giving steroids out to these patients. Uh, there is some question about if you have septic shock or asthma exacerbation of COPD, then provincial guidelines do say, in fact, you can use steroids in those scenarios. I think, Adam, also to add to kind of what you've said about steroids, uh, especially in the process of infectious respiratory illness over the last 
20 years, steroids have always been first suggested and last proven, if at all. Um, and I would use that cautious statement whenever you're dealing with data on using systemic steroids in any respiratory illness. Uh, for every single respiratory illness that we've faced as a medical specialty, whether infectious or uh, uh, especially those infectious in etiology, uh, there's been a quick run to the steroid gun and uh, no data ever really supporting that run. So I would use that caution uh, specifically with COVID. Just treat, treat people as you would with any other respiratory infectious process. Yeah, I, th I think that's uh, I think that's fair. I'm actually uh, well. I'm not going to go into the, the controversy of steroids, but I think that's a fair statement. Um, I think again, just to you know, go back to what Dr. Jeff Eisen had said earlier. Um, you know, yeah, remember it's a, it's a viral illness and, and treat supportively. Uh, and I think in another podcast we can talk a little bit about uh, important things like fluids and um, management on the vent uh, and those kind of things of what uh, what supportive care looks like. Um, Let's see here. Adam, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, this question here? If I have more critical patients than ventilators, is there any clinical lab or radiographic criteria I should help to choose to help me choose who gets the vent? And maybe you don't have to ask that specific question, but maybe you can chat a little bit about the, uh, the ventilation allocation framework and, and, uh, any, and that question if any way you see uh, most appropriate, the most appropriate. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, I will. There was a great article out in New England three days ago about the use, the ethical use of scarcity of resources. I will um, divert people to read that um, because it's a good framework for scarcity argument. When it comes to ventilator allocation, that is difficult. So uh, we talk about ARDS in these patients. They are not typical ARDS, and I think Danish and Mar Mario can confirm that. They are very PEEP responsive, and then you do not need to crank the PEEP that we do with the standard ARDSnet protocol. So if you're on an FIO2 of 60, you do not need to be on a peak between 15 and 20, usually with these patients. That is a big caveat that don't have a, a generalized statement, um, but they are very peak responsive and they're prone responsive. This is an alveolitis-like injury and direct inflammation and damage to type 2 um, alveolar cells. So because of that, they have a failure of hypoxemic um, vasoconstriction and the shunting that Danish got to is that profound hypoxia when they don't look that bad. It's because of interpulmonic shunt. That they're shunting blood crazy. So that's why. So what I would say is um, just be careful with standard treatment. Do not drown these patients. Sorry, don't drown no. these patients in fluid. The SCCM guidelines is giving 30 cc's per kilo of volume um, to critically unwell patients, please do not apply that to a viral pneumonia patient. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you, Adam. Um, uh, there's another question um, we'll answer here, maybe our last question of the, uh, of the evening. Uh, how do you see redeployment playing out, especially for doctors who do not typically work in patient care? Uh, do not typically work within the hospital environment, so GPs and GP subspecialists. So that's uh, that's a great question, and and I'm sure everyone here is from BC. I've seen the uh, the letters from the college looking to uh, to sort of um, 
re, uh, re-pool the workforce to find out who would be willing to work in hospital and retired physicians that have retired within the last two years if they'd be willing to come back and, and work in the inpatient setting. Um, I can't speak to all the all the different departments, but I certainly know there's uh, within the, uh, so someone needs to mute um, a little bit of uh, crackling there. Um, thank you. Um, within the emergency department, uh, we've got uh, GPs not necessarily working with us in the department, but the this bravery of multiple GPs out in the community who have contacted us and are working with the divisions of family practice to open up clinics and figure out ways that they can take patients, the patient load off the emergency department. And uh, they're setting up, just like we have in the emergency departments, the COVID zones and the non-COVID zones um, and seeing patients uh, both physically and then there's just a huge outpour of people that are seeing their patients via telehealth. Um, so I think for GPs, that's great. The GP subspecialists, again, as we move forward, I think um, having them work with us in the eMERGE and again in the ICU will be huge. Those are going to be the two areas that are going to be hit very hard in addition to the inpatient, um, the inpatient wards as well. So I think we'll be looking to uh, set up videos. Of, uh, there's there's um, will be work being done to set up videos on, on how to manage uh, and set ventilators and, and how we do um, management of various, uh, various inpatient um, common um, diseases. So that, that's coming. Uh, within the ICU, I see myself working with our GP subspecialist quite a bit where I'll do rounding and the procedures and maybe they can help with, uh, with family conversations and, and, uh, and help with, uh, with some of the, um, the routine things we do, medication reconciliation, et cetera. So there's definitely ways we're going to get our entire workforce to come, to come together and work. And again, it comes back down to this collaboration that's been so rich and so heartwarming. So we'll definitely find ways for everyone to, uh, to help out. Um, yeah. Um, oh, sure. And actually, yeah. Chloe's got uh, some comments yeah. here, so I'll pass and that on. Also on the wards, we've had a number of um, GPs in the community and retired hospitalists reach out and offer to, to help out should we need it for the, a COVID surge. And we're also considering the individuals. Um, retired physicians are often older in age. Many have hypertension and other comorbidities. Cognizant that we're looking after non-COVID patients all the while, we would do a redeployment of our own staff. And if people are, you know, have offered to help in coming on board, it's not necessarily that they have, not necessary that they have to look after the COVID patients. Uh, we would look at reallocating them to a lower risk ward, maybe like post-fracture ward, ortho ward, and then use our hospitalists on the COVID ward. Again, that familiarity with the medicine and experience being an asset, and we would do onboarding and give them a mentor. And uh, maybe we'll just end with this final note, and maybe Mario, you can comment a little bit about this. Um, it's just, again, there, there are telehealth, uh, virtual health supports for physicians uh, to for, for them to reach out to again, I mentioned uh, Rosie will be there to help physicians if they are uh, dealing with uh, with patients that they may not necessarily feel comfortable with. But uh, and then there's some other uh, platforms that are also uh, available out there through uh, through RCCBC. But Mario, do you want to end on that note and just chat about a few different platforms that are that are available or will be coming shortly to help our uh, physician colleagues? Uh, certainly. Uh, the one thing I did want to add to your statement about redeployment, et cetera, was that I think one of the biggest areas where redeployment might be uh, very, very impactful is in the maintenance of uh, mental health kind of stuff for frontline and active uh, physicians. Uh, and that could be accomplished through telehealth as well, uh, especially with trauma counseling, et cetera, as we approach the days or weeks or months of uh, COVID surge, that does happen. 
Um, with respect to the telemedicine options, I think for physician support, there are certainly uh, uh, three robust pathways to the RCCBC, uh, kind of led by John Pavlovich, that are very, very uh, useful. Uh, there's the Rudy pathway, which allows for Zoom connections and peer-to-peer -peer rural physician support, uh, which you know I think is so important to have a collegial and camaraderie-boosting service like that. Uh, the other kind of pathway is through, uh, led by Kendall Ho, um, which is the Heidi uh, service, again, through RCCBC, which allows uh, rural practitioners to get in touch with emergency physicians. And then finally, there's the uh, Rural Outreach Support, uh, support and eHealth Service, Rosie, uh, that, uh, uh, that involves um, uh, critical care expertise and uh, acute response to uh, COVID as well as non-COVID uh, issues. And uh, these are all uh, accessible. They work in concert and uh, very easily uh, reached. Um, and RCCGC uh, will, will be distributing how to reach them, uh, I'm sure, to all the uh, rural providers out there. Uh, and of course, the rural providers are more than welcome to contact me as well, and I can get them in touch with appropriate um, help as well. And um, yeah, Mario is uh, has been with the with the Rosie Group for for much longer than both Adam and I have, and I think I failed to mention that earlier. So um, yeah, you're definitely a bit of a pioneer in that regard, Mario. So thank you for that, um, Bob. There's one more question that I uh, that I think is really good, but uh, should we end it and leave it for next time? What do you think? Uh... Oh, I think you're on mute. That's okay. Sorry, I missed what you said. I think you're on mute to start. No, I'm, can you not hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now, yep. Okay, great. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I think I, in respect of everyone's time, I, I think we should end now, uh, Omar, and, and thank you all for staying the extra half hour beyond the one hour that we scheduled this for. And, 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 um, and, and I, I think um, I really want to express my sincere thanks to the whole panel. Um, you, Omar, and, and Adam, and Danish, and Mario, Chloe, Dee, you know, for, um, you're all obviously dedicated physicians, excellent presenters, and, you know, just really thank you for taking your time out of your busy lives, your heavy clinical duties, and to, to, to share your experiences and, and answer questions for your colleagues. It, 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 I'm sure it was really helpful, and I'm sure we all really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, in, in, in doing so, you know, I. I'm hoping to be able to invite you back, all of you again. And, and um, as you said, you didn't get to cover everything. There's more questions that weren't answered. And we're, you know, this is all part of a series, and I'll explain a bit more about that in a moment. Um, but we'd certainly love to have you back maybe in a couple of weeks or so. We'll, we'll, we'll talk and when you're available and, and uh, because as things are evolving and, and how we're dealing with COVID and, and just things you didn't cover, I'm sure there'll be lots more to talk about. And can I just, uh, uh, before I, we end, can I just say a quick thank you to Donovan McDonald again? who's been um, feeding us the questions as we go. So it couldn't have been, we couldn't have done this without Donovan. So thank you, Donovan. Very well. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you raised that. Thank you. And, um, and, I, and I also want to thank all the all those who are attending um, and ask that you all take a few minutes to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that you were emailed. Because uh, in order to get your study credits, you must complete these, the online attendance form. And if you complete the evaluation, it will help us make improvements to, to future sessions as well as understand the topics uh, and the issues that are most important to this time. 
And you can, again, you can access those forms via the email link you received earlier today and email Stephanie if you did not receive those forms. Um, we're going to be holding other, other uh, webinars, and I want to just quickly mention those to you, including hoping to invite this whole panel back um, if they'll come. And, and, uh, but we, other topics we're going to cover, we're going to have one specifically coming up on Tuesday, uh, March 31st, 78 p.m., uh, uh, specifically looking at personal protective equipment for healthcare providers, uh, emergency docs, sharing their experiences and update on, on those procedures, both in emergency and non-emergency clinical settings, and be able to answer all your questions with that. We have another one uh, coming up uh, either next Wednesday or Thursday, and again, we're organizing these pretty quickly, so that's why I can't even tell you the date, but you'll, you'll receive a not notification on that one, which is gonna be for uh, primary care physicians. Uh, we're gonna have three different family docs who are uh, knee-deep in, in, in managing their patients um, out and looking at an urban, an urban family full-service line position, a rural practicing position, and we're going to have an inner-city marginal position who's on session mode type of payment. Uh, so there's different contexts of practice, and they're going to uh, each share how, what they're doing to, to how, how their practice is changed, how they're managing their general patients as well as those who are sick and at risk. Um, finally, we're going to be having a, a, a webinar on, on specifically on maternity care. I know a number of you had a lot of maternity-related questions, and I can get the chance to get those answered. We will be providing that as well, and you'll hear about that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so with that, I'd like to, again, thank everyone for, for participating, specifically our incredible speakers, uh, such a valuable in information you gave us all tonight, uh, all of you. So uh, th thanks again, and uh, good night. And good luck in handling all your COVID-19 patients. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Stay safe. Good night. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in for the rest of our episodes. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 